If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Eric Woods with me as we talk about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We'll talk about the background, the cast, the novelization, the production, and of course, the music, all today on Soundtrack Alley. Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. It's good to have you on the show again as we talk about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. What are your initial reactions to Wrath of Khan? Wow. Uh, That's one thing I haven't thought about. Um, The first time I saw Wrath of Khan, I was very young. And I can remember my parents coming home and they've rented two videos for us to watch because I think they were having a party and they wanted to keep me and my brother and sister busy. Uh, Wrath of Khan was one of them and Mr. Mom was the other. And uh, I can clearly remember us not liking Wrath of Khan one bit. We were so (laughs) bored. And so my dad put on Mr. Mom and we're like, yeah, comedy. This is great. And we enjoyed that. Uh, a lot more than we did Star Trek. And I didn't know what Star Trek was. Um, I do remember a few scenes, uh, you know, the, the, the worms in the ears and um, a few space battles, but I just, I didn't get who the characters were and, and, and their relationship to one another and who in the world was Khan and what is a Roth. And I just didn't get it. So, uh, I then eventually caught up with the movies, watching them on television um, uh, and and just catching them like on a Sunday afternoon. And and I think Wrath of Khan and Star Trek three, uh, The Search for Spock, were kind of back to back one afternoon. And I watched it and I was just in total awe at how um, amazing uh, both of those films were and 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 uh, going on th- through the rest of the Star Trek series. To me, nothing ever quite matched Wrath of Khan from 
you know, production to acting to story to direction to uh, I can't say it's music because I think Jerry Goldsmith's uh, The Motion Picture is the best score that he's he's ever written. So it's obviously one of my favorite scores of all time. But mm-hmm. I, I remember enjoying James Horner's uh, music as well. And it was really the first Star Trek main title theme that I I remember uh, more so than than, than Jerry Goldsmith, which came later after seeing um, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. So, um, you know, from when I first saw it, uh, well, let's say the second time I saw it, because the first time I didn't really like it. Of course, I was a kid. But then, you know, when I when I rewatched it, I, I just immediately fell in love with everything about it and, and just kind of hold it. It's the high bar of the Star Trek universe, and it, and it still remains that way after all these years. Yeah, I would have to agree. You know, my first experience, say, with the score um my parents had had been cleaning at this job somewhere and uh they found a audio cassette and on one side it was star trek II: the wrath of khan on the other side it was chuck magione and that was from 1977 uh for chuck magione and it was just interesting because you you look ahead and you see Doctor Strange and you hear that that piece that's done by Chuck Maggioni and it's like oh I had that tape <laughs> right so it so playing Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan I would fast forward the one side and play Chuck uh, uh, play Star Trek over and over and over again because it became like my favorite score um for that time because that was all i had so (laughs) anyway it it, that that was where my first experience of star trek 2 actually happened so um oh you know it's really interesting getting into the bits on uh ricardo monteblanc you know, he he was a really interesting actor, and I think he was chosen really well for the film. Um, on the DVD bonus feature, the captain's log, uh, Ricardo Montalban, or I think it's Montalban, says that once he committed to the film, he realized that he had trouble getting back into the character of Khan. Because, I mean, it had been years since he was on... Uh, Star Trek, the episode in 1967 was Space Seed. And here it is, 1982. And, uh, you know, watch it again. And by the third or fourth watching of rewatching that first episode, he recaptured that essence of the character. And I found that really unique because you wouldn't think that he would have to revisit that character to know how to play it. Yeah, I don't think, for me, I mean, having seen the the episode, for sure, the original Star Trek episode where Khan first appeared, and then in seeing him now, there's such a transformation, like everything that he's gone through. Um, I, I could understand him going back and maybe, you know, watching what the character was like beforehand. But the this the sheer anger and the vengeance that he has, and and just him wanting to have the opportunity to kill Kirk, mm-hmm. um, I think just cha- it completely changes the character. Um, he can 
he yes can go back to to what happened before but i think that he definitely plays the character differently and that makes total sense um he's yeah he's definitely uh yeah vengeful of course um just uh, single minded he as much as he cares about the people that he's around he he's willing to sacrifice them just for that singular goal of making sure Kirk pays for what he did essentially to his to his wife and i think that's where it all kind of uh the root of it all is you know he was he was put on this planet it was the wrong planet and um well actually it was the right planet but um you know little did kirk know that a star was going to explode and change everything and just completely wipe out the planet that he was on mm-hmm. so um you know i really do like the evolution of the character very much because again having seen rothacon first and then going back and watching the original episode where he made his um debut uh, very much a, a different character um although there's the essence of khan um, that we see in Wrath of Khan is 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 there, but it, again, a, a great job of uh, the evolution of the character, and you can definitely uh, give a lot of credit to to the writers of this uh, of this of this film, and of course to director Nicholas Meyer, who just did an absolutely superb job with everything in this movie. Yeah, and then you know you think about how. Khan looked in Star Trek II and and his physique. And a lot of people had the uh, assumption that his chest was prosthetic. And (laughs) and he wasn't. It wasn't. uh, Because he had appeared on The Tonight Show uh, with Johnny Carson, and he explained that he was able to achieve that look by doing a lot of (laughs) push-ups. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, hey, that was the real... Uh, Ricardo, so <laughs> um, I found it interesting also that, you know, when they would air uh, Star Trek II on, say, the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, at one point, I guess, Leonard Nimoy would appear on screen during the commercial breaks and explain different memories and trivia about the film. And then one of the items was the character backstory of Savick. And that I didn't know, that she had a Romulan, or intended to have a Romulan Vulcan heritage, and it would make her more emotional than pure-blood Vulcans. Right. And so there were different hints to this, because you get that during the Kobayashi Maru simulation where she says, damn, and Mm -hmm. she gasps in shock when Scotty appears with the midshipman injured, and then also... She was emotionally moved by Kirk's eulogy for Spock because she actually shed tears. And I thought that was really interesting to bring out. Well, yeah, especially in the, in the you know, the, the Vulcan heritage and the Vulcan characters that you see throughout. I mean, they're they're emotionless. And um, and so seeing a, a Vulcan shed some sort of emotion um, just tells her that she of course, isn't in full control of her emotions. And again, I'm, I'm not necessarily a Trekkie and I don't know everything that goes into, you know, having to become a, I guess a full Vulcan or, or what it is or, or, or the, the type of religion or, or whatever. But um, it, it was just, a, it was just interesting to see a Vulcan do something different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean, man, Kirstie Alley was, I think just an absolutely stroke of genius 
uh, for casting. And again, I, I don't know why she didn't come back for Star Trek uh, three and or four. Yeah. And uh, because I thought she was, she was absolutely magnificent. And uh, I mean, she wouldn't have had a lot to do in three and four, but still, I think she was a fantastic character, a, wonder, a wonderful addition. And she could, she played off Spock really well too. Um, so uh, I, I really, I really liked her character a lot. Yeah, I thought she did an excellent job. And honestly, I don't think the character that they or the actress they chose for Star Trek three or four um, was as good or as as compelling as mm-hmm. Christy Alley's character. The way she played the role, and I just found her more believable. Yeah, I I, I can go with that for sure. Yeah. Um. So. It was interesting, according to Nicholas Meyer, uh, that in the moment when Kirk and Spock used the prefix code to sabotage the Reliant, uh, William Shatner kept overacting and saying, here it comes, now. And according to Meyer, Shatner kept overselling the line, making it too obvious what was about to happen. And so Mm. Meyer kept doing the scene over and over again until Shatner finally got bored and he finally relaxed to say the line more casually. And you could just see William Shatner actually doing that, saying, here it comes, now. (laughs) I mean, I'm doing the worst Shatner impression I could ever do. (laughs) So... Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite. Uh, I mean, I it's the the Reliant versus Enterprise, their first battle. Um, probably one of my favorite ten minutes in all of Star Trek. Um, and I mean, and that a lot a lot of that goes to James Horner as well. Just the way that he, uh, you know, ratchets up the the, the suspense with his music. And um, I, but I just love how. I mean, nowadays you would probably have six million cuts within a scene like that and the action and the suspense would be over in about three minutes and i love seeing these older films and how they can convey so much um and 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 just let it let it breathe Mm -hmm. um let things happen let the characters do interesting things um you know, it's it's even. Uh, I mean, we are talking about Star Trek three as well, and I'm kind of getting off a tangent as well. But I mean, I think one of the best sequences in all of Star Trek is also the steel and the Enterprise sequence. And if you watch that sequence without any music or sound effects, it is so still, it is so dull, nothing happens. Um, you know, slow moving spaceships, really long shots. Yeah, and 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 it's just they're they're confident. They're confident in what they have and that it will work without having to make six million cuts. And the same thing happens with the Reliant and the Enterprise first clash is that they are allowed to um, to have longer shots. And I think that Meyer also gave Horner a lot of responsibility within those 10 minutes to really take the scene over and even hint at things that were going to happen again, the underlying emotion or certain things that the audience might not know is happening, but James Horner is telling you with his music. And I love that type of manipulation. And so if you, anybody can go back and, you know, check it out on YouTube, watch that Reliant versus enterprise first clash. It is a sensational piece of filmmaking and it's so well acted. 
And I just like how there's a little bit of fun in it as well, especially mm-hmm. with the way Kirk is going to, you know, turn the tables. And he's just, again, what's the quote where he says is he um, he was caught with his britches down. Um, but he still is able to think fast. And that what, that's what makes him a good captain. There's so much characterization going on in these scenes. Um, there's vulnerability, but there's also a sense of that he is the reason why he's one of the best of the best. And it's all in this this 10 minute sequence, which is just an absolutely extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Um, and that's why what's what makes Star Trek two so good. It's not just a great Star Trek movie. It's a great movie mm-hmm. on its own. Oh, I would definitely agree, because, you know, you look at other movies made during that time and some don't have the tension or the perfect timing, I guess you could say. For uh, sure. That Nicholas Meyer put into that. Mm-hmm. And even just with different sequences and, uh, I mean, he did his research. You know, you, you think about the whole idea of the Genesis project or the Genesis planet. And he wanted to make sure that there were uh, logical ways of bringing out the Genesis effect. And I thought that was really interesting, too, because he used ILM. And ILM was a company of uh, George Lucas, but yet he was still able to use ILM and uh, use it as like a computer simulation for the Genesis transforming the dead planet. And uh, and then it was a, a brainchild of ex-Boeing engineer Lauren Carpenter that Boeing went on to do more of um, ILM's work. And uh, let's see, I'm trying to get this right. They discovered the uh, the fractals to be able to use and create these mountain landscapes for computer animation and mm. for like aircraft design. And I didn't know that before because... You know, it could be used for airplane simulations and uh, things like that. And, you know, back in these early times of filmmaking, they had to experiment with new ways of doing things. And it led to other things. And I, you know, I didn't realize that uh, before, like looking it up or, you know, even watching it again and saying, you know, this really looks like a computer simulation of like, a flight simulator. Yeah, it's really ahead of its time that uh, that computer simulation. I mean, that is probably one of the first times we've seen sort of CGI in in movies. Um, but you get back to, I mean, ILM had only been around for what six or seven years by that point. Yeah, that's um, true. Coming off of you know Star Wars and that, but you're right that the amount of innovation, um, things that they had to make up on the spot. Um, but, uh, there, you know, the, it's again, something that I, that I really miss in movies these days, even though that some movies say that that's, it's happening is that, you know, they're creating real, you know, models and filming models. And, you know, for the most time they're actually, yeah, they're, they're, they're creating a model, but then they're scanning it and throwing a computer and and using it that way. But I, I just love the effect of actually filming a model. And then compositing it and throwing it into a scene. And it just, the lighting, the textures, the way the ships move, 
um, especially in space scenes and, and the way that they are used in, in these Star Trek Star Trek films, going even from Star Trek, uh, you know, one to, I'm going to say six, even seven. Seven uh, generations had some pretty impressive model work as well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so I, I love that kind of old school uh, way that ILM would go about doing things. And now that we've gotten to this computer age where everything is done at the computer, um I just kind of wish they did it that way again. And I know it's hard. I know it's really hard to do, but there was just something natural and flowing about those, about those shots. I just, I just love the way, again, seeing real models filmed and composited and, and thrown into and put, not thrown, but put into a scene just looked absolutely, absolutely stunning. Oh, I would definitely agree. Like uh, just thinking about the Genesis planet, Mm-hmm. Uh, when they were inside it and in the the tunnels, and you know they invented the set, you know to have these tunnels lead somewhere, and then they were able to you know have plants growing up and right. having right. it look like it was so real. And then when you walk out, I mean, when you see Kirk and the crew walk out into that open chamber. And it's underground, I mean, mm-hmm. in the movie, but, you know, you walk out into that open chamber and you see that they had to use some sort of either modeling, and that's probably what it was, was a model uh, to get that effect to show this massive cave that had uh, already so much vegetation to it. Yeah, um, you know, old school matte paintings and models and, and all that sort of stuff, it's, again, I'm probably just being very nostalgic about these things, but there just is something special and, and uh, real <laughs> for the lack of a better word about the way that special effects were handled yeah. uh, back then. Not everything was perfect. I mean, there's some absolutely wretched effects in Star Trek three. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, when, when I mean, and for, and for the little money that they actually had for Star Trek two, um, because they had to slash the budget from from what they had with Star Trek One, um, I'm, I'm amazed that they got what they what they managed to put on film in in, in Star Trek Two. Um, so yeah, it just it, again, it just, it's one of the re- it's just another reason why it's just such a such a wonderful movie. Just everybody came together and and just did everything almost perfectly. And um, so it's just it's great to watch. It's great to watch. Great yeah. Movie. And another thing that that I really found interesting and fascinating in my notes is the fact with Khan's uh, pet, the eels, yeah, on Study Alpha Five, right, and um, the fact that when you see them entering their ears, yeah, uh, the point that was great about it was the close-ups. Mm-hmm. were actually done on a huge rubber replica of Walter Koenig's ear. Yeah. And one morning, the effects crew discovered that the art department had left a true-to-scale Q-tip next to the giant ear. <laughs> I found that so funny. Yeah, and... that's, uh, that, again, one of the most horrifying scenes in the in the movie. It just scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Yeah, when I find out that's a giant model of his uh, of his ear, it's it's quite hysterical now when I see it. 
I still get the heebie-jeebies from oh, totally. watching that scene. Yes. Ah, oh, <laughs> it, it just gets to me every time. Yeah, I'm with you. And, uh, you know, I, I got to meet Walter Koenig mm. um, at Okamakan one year, and he was talking about the experience and how he kind of had to overact with knowing that there wasn't really anything in his ear. Yeah. And uh, it was just great, you know, to, no, they to get sold that it. idea. Yep. And uh, even with, uh, I can't think of his, the the character, the actor that played his captain, I, I can't think of the actor's uh, name. Paul, Paul Winfield. Yes, Paul Winfield. Mm-hmm. He, he was really, actually acted that very well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he just went on to do some other things and, Ended up in Star Trek again. So, yeah, he did. That's uh, right. That was just, you know, really, really unique to see. And um, But like you were mentioning, you know, there's there's these little unique facts about uh, Star Trek II that they, they really put their heart and soul into making sure things looked right or, yeah. you know, having it look better. And... One of the things that I found was that the Enterprise bridge from the motion picture, it was redressed for the use in the Kobayashi Maru simulator. And then also for the Reliant bridge, as well as the same Enterprise bridge. I found that really unique because they they used like some different modular wedges to rearrange it to make it look similar and distinctive, but not the actual same thing. And so right. I, that's what I found really unique about it was they, they were able to cut corners and use this to to in, change it around to where people didn't notice that it was the same bridge. Yeah, and I mean, again, it goes back to having cut costs, and uh, they had to do this one on the cheap, and they had to basically film this as if it was a television series or a television show. And, uh, and so, you know, coming up with unique ideas like that, um, to, you know, redress sets, um, it saves the money from having to build three separate sets. Then, uh, that's just great. It's just, it's, it's, it's genius. It absolutely is genius. And, and again, I mean, I know we all applaud Nicholas Meyer, but he definitely deserves it. He definitely deserves I mean, God, if you talk about one guy that saved Star Trek, man, it's him. It's mm-hmm. totally him. And he's made the best, he, his contributions to Star Trek. The best Star Trek films have his name on it. He's amazing. He's a hero. He's a hero in Star Trek. I mean, for anybody that's a Trekkie, for sure. No doubt he's a hero. Um, You know, we got Gene Roddenberry, for sure. But, man, you're looking back and you want to see a guy who saved this series. It was Nicholas Meyer. Yeah. And, I mean, he did the same thing with kind of uh, what he did with Star Trek VI. And Mm. that was a really great, great movie. Yeah, it's it's so. totally underrated. Absolutely. And again, again, that was another one. Cut budget and, okay, let's do kind of this murder mystery. And I, it's fantastic. It's I just wish that that's what would be brought back into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Actual great stories, uh, uh, great characters. And I thought that's where they were going with this, this new Calvin timeline Star Trek series. And, I mean, yeah, they're great for kind of action Trek. Mm-hmm. Um even though I didn't really didn't like the third one that much, but it's just, they're relying too much on action. And again, maybe that's something that you can call back to star Trek too, because that's what made in parts 
made it exciting. You know, there's this great battle, but it's a cat and mouse um, film. And, and there's reasons behind our good guy and our bad guy chasing each other. But it's not all action. And I think that's the biggest issue that we are having with Star Trek right now is it's becoming action Trek and they're doing less with the characters and, and really focusing more on special effects and making it a big spectacle. And mm-hmm. I, I really think people will would come out and see a well-drawn character movie with, I mean, I guess a bit of action here and there, but I mean, it's getting to be more and more ridiculous as things, as things progress in the Star Trek uh, universe. And I mean, again, hopefully the new TV series uh, works out really well and they're able to kind of bring it back. finally bring it back to the way it was. But there's way more to Star Trek right now. Or, I mean, there's more to Star Trek than action sequences and big special effects mm-hmm. and and whatever. And I think, um, you know, some of that, those issues will go back to Star Trek 2 because I think people want to make Star Trek 2 meaning they want to make the best Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. And they are just completely ignoring certain aspects of what made Star Trek 2 great. And they're just concentrating on the action and they're not really concentrating on, you know, great direction, great characters and a great screenplay. And that is so important. I mean, throw, sure, throw 200, 300 million dollars at the film, but man, make interesting characters, really have these people do something interesting. Let us love them again. And I, and I was there, I swear I was there with the new Star Trek. I loved the first one, but then once they went down this whole road of remaking Star Trek two with into darkness, I was like, wow, I am totally out of this. And then I don't know what in the world beyond was. Cause I just like, I'm, I'm out. I can't do this. I just, mm-hmm. it just didn't, I didn't get it. But anyway, it's just, I think they need a refresh and they really kind of have to scale things down. I think they really have to scale it down and finally get to the root of what makes Star Trek great. And it's great characters and it's, it's great stories. It's great science fiction. And that's, for me, what makes Star Trek so great. That's great. (laughs) Sorry, I went on a tangent there anyway. um, (laughs) Sorry, I I totally missed what the original point was, but it was just, I mean, again, going back, just think about what Star Trek 2 is and why Star Trek 2 is great. And and, and, and it has everything. That's the thing. It has everything, and everything's done so well. And, I mean, I've been repeating myself with that point, but that's what makes it so great. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about, as we've talked a little bit about the sets and the different areas that they use, like, I didn't realize before that the desert surface of SETI Alpha 5 was simulated on a stage and that the set was elevated 25 feet off the ground and it was covered with wooden mats that had different colored sands uh, and powder that was dumped onto, I guess, the platform. And the cyclorama was painted and wrapped around the set while uh, the massive industrial fans created the sandstorm. And so the filming was uncomfortable. And <laughs> they said the spandex environmental suits that Keenig and Winfield war were unventilated and so they had to signal by a microphone when they needed air and you know these unique little 
different elements that they would use for the sets or trying to make it seem as real as possible. And that, you know, that's another thing that really makes Star Trek great is to make it look real. Mm-hmm. And I think even modern Star Trek movies, they don't look that real. I mean, they have, you know, environments. They're like in Star Trek Beyond, they're on a distant planet and there's trees and everything everywhere. But it's like having like these sets and then creating the effect that it's on a real planet. That's what made it great. Right. Yeah. It's a hard thing to do for sure. Especially in this day and age where um, even the you know, like a general film going fan can pick out things that are fake. Actually, it's funny. Even my daughter can do it. Um, she was, I mean, we're going to get off on a, on a little point here, but this kind of goes back to the point about things looking real. She was watching uh wonder woman the other day. And uh, there's one scene that happens in the beginning of the movie. And uh, it's like some wonder woman jumping towards the camera or something like that, or she's climbing up a wall or something. She's seven years old, and she just blurts out. She goes, oh, my God, that looks so fake. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I mean, just think about how much money was thrown into this movie. Yeah. And my seven-year-old daughter just is so aware of what movies look like these days. Um, And she can pick out just the fakest of fake, crappy CGI. It is so amazing. Um you kind of you have to have that um, that sense of uh, believability. You, you gotta. It's really hard to do. I know. I've done special effects before, and it's such a hard thing to do. Um, but uh, but then, yes. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to bring up that you know even the uniforms that they used, mm, uh, mm-hmm. they were designed with a naval theme intended to represent a military uniform. Um, They had clothing that was made from materials that they could find. And designer Robert Fletcher said that his intention with Khan was to express the fact that they had been marooned on this planet with no technical infrastructure, and they had to cannibalize from the spaceship whatever they used or wore, and therefore tried to make it look as if they dressed themselves up out of pieces of upholstery and electrical equipment that composed the ship. And that was true, too, when you look at the outfits. Um, whoever, I can't remember who the costume designer was. Uh, well, it's a Robert Fletcher was one of the designers, but um, the main designer, you know, for the Star Trek uh, the naval uniforms and even Christy Alley's uniform uh, for uh, her being Savick. And they wanted to make sure that, well, Nicholas Meyer wanted to make sure that they avoided overt sexuality with her. Hmm. And I think they did it very well. Um, they made her a very uh, strong female character. Um, and didn't accentuate her sexuality as a woman. Right. Which was well done. 
Yeah, indeed. Uh, I I think the uniforms are fantastic. I mean, anything beats the pajamas that they were wearing in the first uh, in the motion <laughs> picture. Yeah. Um. Uh, it it yeah I I, I kind of wish they got went back to them. I don't. Uh, I love those uniforms. <laughs> I really do. It it screams Star Trek to me. Um. I think the the last time I mean every kind of improvement or sort of improvement or or modification that they've made to the uniforms over the over the series haven't really uh, worked for me. Um, so I love the, I love the red uniforms. Um, I think they're fantastic. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, a great job by the, by the, the costume designer. Um, and yeah, it's just everything again, everything to your point, everything looked real. Mm-hmm. Um, they even felt like, I mean, it's just, it, they, they even looked comfortable, you know, they, they, they just, it, it just matched it matched everything that in it, the environment and you're right. What, what someone would wear, like, you know, like I said, in, in the Navy and again, that whole Navy theme or, or, um, nautical theme, um, uh, you know, comes out into, in the movie and even in the music as well. So it's so very, uh, yeah, you know, it goes across different, um, aspects of, of the film. So, you know, everything from the costume design to, uh, to the way the film looks effects wise all the way through to the, mu- to the music. It's, it's just, perfect a cohesive whole yeah. love it and uh we had been i mean we we talked a little bit about uh you know the score and how uh james horner had you know composed the score and i mean he just did a brilliant job um you know dealing with that and i thought it was interesting though uh this was just something that kind of blew my mind that three prominent collaborators on the film died four months of each other. Harv, huh. Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy died two days apart. Bennett on February 25th, 2015. Nimoy on February 27th, 2015. And then James Horner died four months later on June 22nd. Hmm. So I really... That blew my mind. I was like, wow. Three people that worked on Star Trek II died within three months of each other. Right. And uh, it just made me appreciate the film even more because uh, great acting in the film, uh, great ideas, and as you had said, really dealing with the storyline um, with the story, the characters, uh, just the different things that were involved with it. Another thing I really appreciated was the effects of inside the ship, um, such as engineering, um, having the effects of the the smoke and the 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 dampness, the the damp feeling that the characters had of uh, toward the end where there was a lot of heat in those moments um, where uh, Spock was going to save the ship. Right. and um, But it's like just so, such realism uh, to that uh, idea. And one of the things I liked was that the script called for McCoy to say, He's dead, Jim, at Spock's death, but uh, he feared it would draw unintentional laughs. And so um, Scotty said, 
sir, he's dead already. And right. it, it made more sense, and I think it was really a good way to bring it out. And so many people have commented that uh, Leonard Nimoy wanted to not be Spock anymore, and yet so many people were so caught up with his death that they wanted him to come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought it was interesting that Spock's mind meld with McCoy wasn't in the original script, nor did he direct the scene. It was added after test audiences said they wanted to see that Spock could be revived. Mm -hmm. And Paramount ordered the change. And so Meyer even threatened to have his name taken off the film, which was really surprising because... According to Leonard Nimoy's autobiography, Harv Bennett approached him during the filming and suggested doing a mind meld uh, as a thread we could pick up in a later film. And so in this account, it was Nimoy who suggested the single word remember. And so he he made no mention of the studio ordering this change nor uh, this being due to any of the test audience screening. And I thought it was unique, and it's something that a lot of us who are just film watchers don't see. You know, we we didn't see that side of it to know this could have totally changed the franchise. Right, and, and just thinking about it now, I mean, it would have been, I think it would have been really interesting to have Spock completely gone, and then to see how... Uh, Savick and Kirk's relationship could have blossomed. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, you've got a different type of Vulcan. Um, you got someone who is willing to challenge his authority. And that, I think, would have been really great. And I think, again, that you know, going in even to, to Star Trek Nemesis, I think that's what they were trying to do with Data. Mm -hmm. Is that they were trying to kind of revive that whole... Um, relationship between uh, uh, Picard and Data when you had, um, sorry, what was the name of the, the new droid? Uh, B4. B4. Yeah. And I think that would have been interesting. <laughs> so, um, you know, Spock, I, I again, I'm not a, I'm not a Trekkie, um, but uh, it wouldn't have bothered me if he was gone. Um, I think that, again, Savick and Kirk would have made an interesting team and to see how they could bounce off each other and, and certain, in certain things. And I mean, you still have all your other classic characters, but it, but now, you know, seeing Star Trek three and four and whatnot and, and having Spock come back, it still doesn't take away from how emotional that final scene is with Kirk and Spock and just seeing, um, how important, uh, they are to each other and how, you know, as Nimoy, as a Vulcan who doesn't have any quote-unquote emotion, I think shows a bit there. Um, the way he feels about uh, Kirk and, you know, having, you know, being friends. It's something that is important to him. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I think, that this, again, that's what... <laughs> That's what makes these characters so great because they, as much as you think you know who they are, they still have room to grow. And even though our characters here in this film are older, 
it was only touched upon their age. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very short scene between uh, McCoy and Kirk, you know, during his birthday and giving him the glasses. And of course, then during the first Reliant Enterprise battle, Kirk having to put the glasses on to read the uh, the control board, which I thought yeah. was just a stroke of genius. I think mm-hmm. that's great. And it's, it, it's a classy way of addressing age instead of just kind of throwing it in your face and going, hey, these guys are old. Yeah, we get it. But you can show it in a tasteful way. And they did such a great job in this and also exploring the friendship between the three major characters of Kirk, Spock and McCoy and how much Spock meant to everybody. And 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 not a lot is said about that. But, you know, just seeing again, the final scene saying so little tells so much. And again, the acting is so good, especially during um, Kirk's funeral. The, it's the just, eulogy, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's such a great, great scene. And it's not overdone. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. And so deeply emotional. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, again, not being a Trekkie myself and not growing up with the series, but I don't think you've ever felt this type of emotion in a Star Trek movie before. And uh, that's what's well, so great about it. That's what's so great about it. There had only been one movie before. <laughs> sure. And again, again, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent, you know, familiar with everything that was in this, in the, in the series. So I don't know how much of that was addressed or, or whether you got that type of, that type of feeling, but what they were able to do in this second film and, and just, you know, you could bring a grown man to tears by watching this. And it's Star Trek, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's and that's what's so great. Again, characters and screenplay. So, so important. So important. I think that's way more important than any special effect that's out there. Yeah. And one thing that really gets me about this film so well is the score. And mm. what really totally. amazed me was that James Horner actually did appear in the film. Yes. Yes. He that's was right. running down a corridor uh, during the preparation for the final battle, just before the torpedoes are lawn- loaded into the launch bay, I didn't even realize that before. Oh yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. And originally, Nicholas Meyer had hired John Morgan to score the film. That's interesting. I never heard that before. I know yeah. they wanted a goldsmith, but they couldn't afford him. Um, I didn't know John. I didn't know John Morgan was even considered. Yeah, that would and, have been interesting, though. That's oh fantastic. yeah, fantastic. It would have been a different film i think i mean or a different way of bringing out the music yeah um, for sure but he, before he could even write any music the dis- producers decided morgan wasn't experienced enough and so they <laughs> fired him and gave it to james horner i want to know where this came from that's crazy i don't know that's I, crazy it was just in my notes and uh i didn't look deeper into it but wow well, you're talking been... about a guy who doesn't have that much experience, man. James Horner was the one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's interesting. I mean, well, I mean, look, if you if, if you listen to Battle Beyond the Stars, it's basically a Star Trek score. So, um, yeah. but I mean, Goldsmith, I mean, sorry, Goldsmith, uh, Horner wasn't, well, Horner, man, he, when you're talking about a golden age of a composer, I mean, he's had, he has a, a few great, amazing stretches in his career, but I mean, the beginning of his career... It was kind of shaky. It was, it was, and then you got Star Trek, and then all of a sudden it's like, 
once you get into Star Trek, I mean, Wolfen's not bad, but then you get Star Trek and you think about, you think about something wicked this way comes, you think about Krull, you think about Brainstorm, uh, Uncommon Valor, Gorky Park, and then he does Star Trek three. I mean, holy cow. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy was on fire. And to give, I mean, what was he, 27 or something like that? Was he in his 20s when he did Star Trek II? Yeah. Um, to have that responsibility, unbelievable. Well, but I'm sure he was cheap, and that's why they got him. Yeah, and when when you mentioned Battle Beyond the Stars, I mean, he borrowed heavily on that. Mm. But he was asked by the producers to deliver a film score both modern and distinctive. And they didn't right. want John Williams but in keeping with a nautical theme, I thought it was interesting that Nicholas Meyer wanted music evocative of seafaring and swashbuckling. Huh. Yeah. And I thought that was so cool because even James Horner used synthesizers for some ancillary effects. And at the time, science fiction films were enchewing the synthesizer in favor of more traditional orchestra. And I thought... That was certainly different. Um, And one thing that, you know, really makes it interesting is that James Horner, he was trying something new, but uh, he kept kind of these rhythmatic themes that were reminiscent of other films that he had done, like Wolfen, and then it had been influenced by Jerry Goldsmith's score for Alien. And due to budget constraints, the film had to settle for a lesser-known composer that would ask for less money. And so that's how... Oh, okay, here it is. James Horner was 28. 28. Yeah, and relatively cheap to hire, and he he was recommended by Joel uh, Sill, who felt Horner's music was far from generic film music. That's true. So I thought that was uh, really, really good. Um, one other thing that I really liked was uh, that Craig Huxley, he, yes. per- he performed his blaster beam, an instrument that he had invented during the recording. And he composed and performed the electronic music for the Genesis Project video. And on the expanded score that is through, let's see, I'm not Film sure. Film Score Monthly. Yes, it's through Film Score Monthly. Um, on that expanded score, they have that piece for the Genesis Project video. And I found it right. really unique uh, to listen to that. And he said, or Horner said, at first he wasn't going to, no, uh, Craig Huxley, I'm sorry. Um, he had said, at first I was not not going to do it, but then I started writing the music. I figured out a way to incorporate part of that fanfare into that music. So that was really interesting. And, I mean, just James Horner did such an amazing job with it. And so so now we can really get into uh, a few of these cues that I've got prepared. Um, um, the first cue that I've got is the main title and surprise attack. Now, what do you think of these two cues specifically, Eric? Uh, well, you know, I love the main title. Uh, again, it's the when I think about main titles of, of of the Star Trek movies, it's it's the one that keeps coming back to me. Um, again, if I can remember correctly, it's 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 blue font, 
um, you know, on, on the space field. And I just always loved Horner's uh, theme for the main title. Um, and we've talked in detail about uh, surprise attack mm-hmm. and how that leads into then Kirk's explosive reply. Um, again, a brilliant 10 minute sequence in this film that I think just, again, Horner is telling a lot of the story with his music. He's telling you things that necessarily you don't see on screen, but are, are happening in the minds of our characters or what eventually will happen. I mean, Kirk has no idea that the Reliant is filled with, you know, the, the bad guys. And yet every time the Reliant is on screen, Horner has that blaring bad guy motif going on. And it's 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 sensational. Um, so just a, again, it's I love everything about this score. It's a definite classic. And these two cues are are just sensational. Some of the best tracks. Um, I'm probably going to say this about every track that you play here today. But I mean, just some of the best stuff that Horner has uh, that Horner ever did. And again, at 28 years old. It's incredible the amount of inspiration that he had uh, yeah. in this film. Oh, definitely. And, you know, when I think about these pieces of music for uh, the main title and then Surprise Attack, we get this, you know, tense music that that is playing. And, uh, I mean, James Horner used these... Uh, the, the string section and the horns, and it really brought out this powerful motif for uh the music and how you know these two ships (laughs) volley back and forth between them and uh then there's the damage assessment of the ship and uh it just really really reaches into your heart and draws you into the film even further Mm -hmm. to to give you this excitement um so i i really appreciated it as well uh, so so now I'll play uh, main title and surprise attack. Thank you. 
Next, I would like to play Battle in the Mutara Nebula. Now, Eric, what do you find precious about this cue? <laughs> when you when you talk about epic Star Trek cues, uh, this is probably the best one. Um, again, the cat and mouse game between Khan and and, and Kirk. Uh, comes out in full force, I think, here in this track. And uh, I just, I love everything about, you know, the moment that it actually, when the when the two ships hit the actual nebula, it just, things die down. And it's, and it's, again, it's, it's, it's all about the suspense and the way these ships are moving. And again, it's, it's slow moving spaceships, mm-hmm. but Horner has just this way of making something like that seem to be the most exciting thing in the universe. And again, Horner was throughout his career, a master at long cues. And what he would do was actually record these cues in one take. Um, Not saying that he wouldn't do them over and over again, but instead of doing them in, in, in parts like some composers do, most composers do, he would sit there and conduct, and for this track, it's eight minutes and ten seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's start to finish with the film, and he felt that that was more real. That even if things were off just a little bit, it still felt uh, more alive instead of being as precise as possible. And uh, and I think that comes through in the music uh, in every long. I mean, again, go through Horner's career and just listen to his long cues. Those things are recorded like from note one to the last note, all in one take. And I really appreciate that from Horner. He really loved things that were it felt real. It felt natural. It felt human. You can tell that, you know, there's it, it's it's not uh, it's not fake. It, it again, being precise with with sync points it it didn't really um it it didn't matter um again and i think that has something to do with early in his career he really wanted to be a concert composer Mm -hmm. and so by writing these long cues i kind of gave him a chance to expand on his ideas um and not necessarily in the in, in this cue i mean it's still a battle cue but um you know you get from let's say the epilogue to the end title and that's like 16 minutes long and uh, that's one unbroken uh, or piece. piece. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's uh, this it, cue um, is, again, like I said, just epic Star Trek. And in, 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 and it does more than just play to the action. Um, it uh, there's a lot of emotion in it as well. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I think about is when you're watching the movie of the battle in the Mutara Nebula and then you have, um, like, even it feels like the epilogue and the end titles all blend together, even though you have that that simple uh, moment uh, where there's silence and there's the amazing grace uh, yeah. piece that is playing. Um, that whole piece is played in the uh, uh, Film Score Monthly uh, mm-hmm. composition. And... I found that really unique because even that piece, it's not the entire, you know, bagpipes. <laughs> right. It's more than that. It goes into orchestra and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then you get that epilogue and in titles and, you know, it's just fantastic how 
James Horner just blended it all together, having these different themes of Kirk and and Khan and uh, having that Enterprise theme, uh, you know, playing in the background with the battle in the Mutara Nebula. So, mm-hmm. um, so now we can appreciate that by playing Battle in the Mutara Nebula.
So finally, we are going to conclude with um, the epilogue and with uh, the end titles. Now, Eric, with this cue, how do you think it affects the ending of the film? Uh, you know, we talked a lot about um, the characters and and emotion. And, uh, again, not saying just because it's a Star Trek film, you can't feel any emotion, but I'm, you know, just genuine emotion between these characters and, and their friendship. And when you look at Horner's career as a whole, emotion was the big thing for him. That's what carried his scores more so than, than themes and, uh, I mean, it was about motion and, and kind of color and texture for him. And mm-hmm. if he could capture that, then he did his job. I mean, he did mention that themes came to him relatively easy and that makes sense. Um, but I think that the, again, the playing of amazing grace going into Horner's orchestral arrangement of that, and then coming out to the Star Trek theme, written by Alexander Courage and hearing Leonard Nimoy's uh, delivery of the classic Star Trek opening dialogue, which, which again, in the television hear. series, yes, which, which I mean, again, is, is not delivered by Nimoy in the, in the television series. Um, just again, it, it, it's such a powerful moment and it's, it's those sweeping strings that just, it, it just brings goosebumps to your, you know, it just goes chills and goosebumps on your arm and chills down your spine. It's, it's just fantastic. And then, of course, let's not forget the sense of excitement and adventure that we had felt during the two hours that we had spent with these characters in this movie. And, and Horner makes sure, we, makes sure that we don't forget that mm-hmm. with his wonderful end title piece, which, again, basically reprises everything that we heard in the main title, but expands on uh, Spock's theme and, and and everything else that uh, you know he tried to uh, convey in the main titles, but then was able to expand in the, in in the end title, and then of course you know when you get into Star Trek Three, he's able to expand on those ideas and more in his main title for that film. So just I, I like the way that everything kind of again I don't think I'm not sure whether Horner was thinking about the sequel at the time, but it just it flows perfectly out of the movie and the end credits and then right into those main titles of Star Trek Three. Mm-hmm. Absolutely masterful scoring, and again. Emotion is the key to this score and especially to this epilogue and entitle. He just captures the emotion of this particular film, this particular scene perfectly. And again, he was just, again, 28. And to completely understand that, it's it's unreal. It really yeah. is unreal. And yeah. just, just goes to show just what type of a genius he was. Oh, yeah. And, you know... Since we're going to uh, really be able to play that cue and really appreciate it for what it was. So, you know, today I'd like to thank you for being on my show once again. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Um, It's always so enjoyable to have you on the show to be able to talk about an iconic film and for it being a Star Trek film. And some Star Trek films aren't as great as others, but... Uh, when we think of the music, it can really heighten that experience to know that it's better than what we are seeing on the screen sometimes. So um, where can people find you? 
Uh, you can check me out various locations. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Sinsound Radio. I'm on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. And you can check out my radio show at CinematicSound.net, which is, and the show is also available on iTunes. So just look for Cinematic Sound Radio as well there. Yeah. So for me, people can find me on SoundtrackAlley.net, uh, SoundtrackAlley.podbean.com on iTunes. I guess I can get it on Google Play now. Uh, I tried looking it up, and it's only, you have to put it in as one word, Soundtrack Alley. Um, and then people can email me. Uh, I set up soundtrackalley at yahoo.com for people to email me if they want to give comments or uh, have questions. So uh, thanks for everything. I'd like to thank uh, Jillian Orwall for my intro today. Um, Communicated with her, and she arranged an intro for me for free, and that was really special. Um, And so now we'll play Epilogue. And in titles. So happy listening.
These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day.